One of the best-known hymns of the American South is a hymn for Good Friday, and it begins with both a declaration and a question. What wondrous love is this, O my soul, O my soul? What wondrous love is this, O my soul? What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul? To bear the dreadful curse for my soul. This and most of our Good Friday hymns call the crucifixion of Christ both a dreadful curse and an act of unfathomable generosity and love. When Jesus suffers and dies on the cross, the result is my salvation. That's what the Bible tells us. That's what our hymns tell us. That's what our catechism teaches us. It's right there on page 850 of your Book of Common Prayer. Question, what is the great importance of Jesus' suffering and death? Answer, by his obedience, even to suffering and death, Jesus made the offering which we could not make. In him we are freed from the power of sin and reconciled to God. It's right there in black and white as a basic tenet of our faith. And yet when we stop to think it all through, many of us struggle to make sense of it, either intellectually or emotionally or both. There are at least a half a dozen theories in the history of Christian thought that try to explain how this process of atonement works, atonement being how we become at one with God again, how Jesus' death and resurrection frees us from the power of sin and reconciles us to God. A couple of these theories talk about how Jesus was a great teacher and a moral example for us to learn from and to follow. They argue that his willingness to make the ultimate sacrifice and God's willingness to vindicate him in the resurrection gives us both the inspiration and the internal resources to turn from sin and to be changed. Another theory says that Jesus sacrificed himself to appease God whose anger roils at our sinfulness, that he stood in our place to take the punishment that we deserved. And so it no longer needs to be delivered upon us because Jesus took our punishment for us, he wiped the slate clean for us forever and made us worthy to stand before God. Still another theory describes creation as kind of a battleground between good and evil, and that by dying and being raised by God from the dead, Jesus reigns victorious over the powers of sin and death and the devil and effectively just robs them of their power. Each of these theories can be defended by Scripture, and theologians have found them all to be kind of internally consistent. Each of them has proponents among and within the various branches of our Christian family tree. And probably each of them is represented among our beliefs here tonight. Certainly, they are each represented among the hymns we'll sing tonight and the prayers we'll say. We don't have just one theory. In other words, people of sound faith can and do disagree about the exact how of salvation and We can change our minds and yet be faithful Christians. So that means we're all off the hook 
as we struggle to understand what we hope to believe by faith. And at least within the Anglican tradition of which we are a part, none of these explanations should be considered the only right way of thinking. I say all of this to give myself some room, I suppose, because there's some relatively new thinking on the atonement that is decades old rather than centuries, and which has lodged itself in my own consciousness as something that resonates with scripture and and with reality as truthful. It's often referred to as the final scapegoat or the final sacrifice theory of atonement. And if you're a nerd like me and you want to read more about it, you can meet me after and I'll hook you up. The theory is basically this, that Jesus' suffering on the cross is like God erecting a huge cosmic mirror, reflecting back to us on the cross in high definition the sheer ugliness and the depth of our human sin. The crucifixion shines a spotlight on our human propensity, all of us, to sacrifice others in our place, to project our anxieties onto others and to punish them for our inability to have all that we want and our horrible propensity to allow whole groups of others to become scapegoats for our fears and our anxieties and our sins. The Romans scapegoated the Christians in the first centuries after Christ. The Germans and, well, plenty of others have scapegoated Jews, most notably in the Holocaust. The Serbs scapegoated and sacrificed Muslims in the Bosnian War. We Americans did it to Native Americans, to the Irish, and then the Italians and the Japanese during World War II. We continue to scapegoat African Americans because, well, perhaps the white dominant culture in which we live continues to carry the shame of slavery and want for some relief. And of course, most recently, we have taken to scapegoating Mexicans and Muslims, illegal immigrants and refugees. The social dynamic at that kind of national or communal level isn't a whole lot different on an interpersonal level. When I was in the, I don't know, second or third grade, I was part of this little group of girls who were so-called best friends, except that just about every week or two, we managed to gang up on one or the other of us, and we all hated her that week. So united, we united together to torture one another, And it gave us this feeling of kind of safety, security, superiority. Until, of course, it was our turn to be the sacrificial lamb. By uniting together against a common enemy who becomes our scapegoat, we gain a temporary release from our fears and anxieties, maybe, and a measure of peace. But at what cost? And can it ever really be peace? Every act of sacrificing another, every instance of human scapegoating is an illusion. It only appears to bring safety and peace. It only appears to. Our propensity for sacrifice and scapegoating others is sin. And it is from this sinful cycle of violence and victimization that we need to be set free. 
So, indeed, what wondrous love it is when God in Christ, the one who, without sin, and who was God himself, says, enough is enough. When he willingly offers himself up on the cross to be the final victim of our thirst for sacrifice and allows himself to become our final scapegoat. When pure, unadulterated goodness becomes our victim, it lays bare and exposes this human cycle of sacrifice and violence for what it is, an illusion, and empties it of its power once and for all. That's kind of the, in a nutshell, this newish theory of atonement. This is how we are saved. When we finally come to see that our old habitual ways of sin give us nothing in the way of hoped-for peace and security, we can come to live a new way, holding no hostages, but walking in the way of truth and of peace. There's a little vignette in the Passion story that usually escapes our attention, but I think it points ahead from this story that we just read precisely to what God is doing as Christ goes to the cross and to his death and three days later is raised from the dead. Each of our four Gospels includes this little teeny vignette, which we hardly even notice. But if they all four of them include it, we might better pay attention. In the garden on the night that Jesus was betrayed, when the soldiers and the representatives of the religious authorities came for Jesus to arrest him, the disciples are, are consumed with fear and anger. Some of them flee, we're told in some of the stories. Some stay. One of the disciples, Peter, we're told in John's Gospel, takes his sword, strikes the high priest slave, and cuts off his ear. And Jesus says, Put your sword back into its sheath. He, Peter embodies our natural human reaction in a time of tremendous fear and terror to strike out, to preserve. But to this Jesus says, enough. Put your sword back in its sheath. On the way to his own death, when he should himself have been overcome with fear, tempted to violence, he stops to attend to the one who's come to do him harm. He forgives and he heals. And so, in the midst of this story and every Good Friday, we're invited to look around and to look within ourselves and to find the pattern that, is, that God is trying to break. The pattern of finger-pointing is everywhere, from the world news to those little jabs that we give our siblings or our partner or the cashier at the Walmart, when you know you're right and they're wrong. And you just can't help yourself to have that little sense of superiority and strength. To it all, God says, no more of this. We all have our tangled webs we're called to break free from. Leaving those webs, breaking free from them, learning not to fight, not to fly 
out of fear, but to let ourselves be restrained from our worst instincts and then lift it up with that divine love, even from our enemies. This is the task of the brand new day that dawns on Easter. This is the work of the new community that was founded in Jesus' name. Amen.